Listening to Real Talk on RCR Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Um, my next guest has made a name for herself. She has been critical of what's happening with tribalism, the new tribalism entering into New Zealand, and the, how does that fit alongside a, a Western capitalist democracy? And she's also been uh, critical of what's happening in education, which is why we're having her on this morning to help us try and understand what's been going on to uh, uh, in our schools. Because if you want to see the future, it's been said, uh, have a look at what your kids are being being taught. Um, and whenever I've delved into that, mm, doesn't look good. Um, now, Professor Elizabeth Rata is... Professor of Sociology, and her specialist field is what is called Critical Studies in Education. She'll correct me if I've got that wrong, uh, but I'm going to introduce her to you now, and she's kindly allowed me to call her Elizabeth. So, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Rodney. Thank you for the invitation to speak. Oh, you're so kind to have you on. Now, just a couple of things. When I see sociology, my mind sort of blanks out because my experience of sociology was a whole lot of woolly stuff that I couldn't comprehend and wordy and also applied socialism. And when I see critical studies, I understand I'm supposed to run away. Can you explain how you got into sociology and what the critical studies means? Right. Well, I use the term sociology to mean the study of society. Simple as that. Well, an, I objective, that. an objective study of sociology using the scientific method. Right. And I, about, I know not all sociologists take that position, but that's mine. Yes, and indeed, uh, the great Sir Karl Popper and, and, and was, uh, was regarded uh, sociology as a science, but it had to be done without that ideological overlay that many of its founders gave us i'm thinking it was it max weber or someone like that that um gave us a lot of odd thinking and also critical studies in education what does the critical oh, studies mean well that's that's a tricky question critical studies is actually marxism um and it has it is now part of our universities, particularly in faculties of education, um, it's a way of understanding society as being divided into opposing um, forces. So there's always opposition, there's always conflict. Um, conflict between it originally the conflict between classes, the working class and the bourgeoisie. Increasingly, over the last twenty years, it's been seen as conflict on uh, uh, between racialized groups. Um, now, it's just a historical accident that I'm in the School of Critical Studies in Education, but um, it, it, it's okay because I'm able to criticize it. 
Yes, uh, good on you. The, I noticed the term that. critical gives the gives the sense that it's about um, criticism, when really critical theory is the name that um, a group of German sociologists, Marxist German sociologists, gave to their position, their political position in the 1930s and 40s. So it's a misnomer. Critical studies, critical theory sounds as though it's about being critical when um, it's actually a particular um, social Marxist position in um, academia. Mm. But I, I take it to mean um, being critical. You identify, <laughs> you can identify as being critical, right? Um, we've heard a lot uh, this past little while on Reality Check Radio about the origins of wokeism and that Frankfurt school that escaped Nazism and went to, what was it, Columbia University in the 30s. That traces back to a lot of it, as I understand it. And that's what you're referring to in the 1930s, yeah. I guess. Yes, I am. And of course, in New Zealand, we've always had the two very strong strands of socialism and of liberalism, and they've worked really well in a intention. Mm. Um, apparently, in the 1880s, um, a group of New Zealand trade unionists went to the Fourth International in Paris, and Frederick Engels was there. Wow. You know, we, we've got this very strong trade union um, background, so very strong identification with working class rights, with, um, you know, the old 40-hour week going back yes. to the 19th century. So we've got that. Um, and we've also got a strong liberal tradition where the um, force of the group is countered by an equal um emphasis on the importance of the individual so we've we've had that that quite good tense balance mm. over the last 150 odd years but increasingly it's been I, I think of it in terms of liberalism the emphasis on the individual communitarianism the emphasis yes. on the group and we've managed as I say we've held that in, in a quite a creative tense yes. balance no, I concur but over the last 20 years, especially as the communitarianism um, approach, the idea that the group comes first, has become, is seen as the racialized group. The real problem with that is a racialized group is fixed in the past. You're seen as someone, you belong to that group because of your genetic ancestry, so you can't escape from it. But with the working, the idea of the group as the the class, you know, the working class, the middle class, it didn't have that sort of fixed um, state in the past. You could escape your class. So in a way, class politics it does have um, a connection to liberalism, and that's yes. why it probably worked so well. But not ra not racialized communitarianism. That that's, does not sit with that's a, liberalism. That's an extremely insightful point that you can escape the working class, and well, the middle class. You can yes. escape them. <laughs> you know, and any that, class you can move, and you can look forward, <laughs> and you can look mm. forward. Mm. But the interesting thing I've come to realize through interviews on the radio is that the new wokeism, for want of a better word, has dropped class and replaced it with race and gender 
um, and victimhood, and class doesn't appear anymore uh, in their it's, critique. It's, it's which is extraordinary because really sociology departments in university um, started um, based on you know the examination, the exploration of class, and to find that sociology now no longer um, looks at class is just quite amazing. Um, it's sort of it's lost its reason for being in a way. Um, but but yes, class has um, has disappeared. So we no longer have a way of talking about our position in society in terms of, um, you know, the economy. No, yeah. We, we're now fixed yeah. to, yeah. we can only see ourselves in terms of, as I say, race or, and of course, um, gender, um, sort of things that... Um, yeah, the term wokeism is is a useful catch-all term for this enormous change in it's a revolution. It's a, it's a revolution, isn't it? It it is a revolution. Yes, I agree. You um, had a hand in starting uh, the Kura schools. I read on Wiki, Wikipedia and uh, Kahanga Reo. Uh, is that Wikipedia correct? I was um, one of the original group, the founding group of Kura Kaupapa Māori, and I um, I was committed to, we had two aims. One was the revival and survival of the Māori language, mm -hmm. and the second one was the um, to ensure the um, achievement of Māori children in education. Mm. Now, I still hold to those aims. Mm. Um, or, or, although I have a more nuanced position about the Māori language now, but those two aims um, fit well within a liberal democratic society. Of course. And it was only after I'd been in the Kura movement for several years, we, we were very successful. We managed to get um, the legislation to, for the for Kura Kaupapa Māori to be recognised um, uh, and, and government funded. We established five kura in Auckland. You know, we're incredibly busy. It, but it was only after a few years I realised that what we said we were doing was not, in fact, what we were doing. We said it was about those two aims. But actually, I I realised, and it was a, it was a, it caused me. Um, a great deal of intellectual turmoil to just realize that it wasn't about Maori education. It wasn't even about the language, really. It was about retribalization. And it was at that point that I um, um, changed what I was writing in my PhD thesis and I started to investigate um, not just retribalization, but elite emergence. And I used New Zealand as a case study of how an elite, an emergent elite, and of course, that's one of the um, advantages of capitalism. We can have emergent elites all the time. You know, mm. you don't have to be mm. born into an elite mm. and that's it forever. You can, by dint of lots of different things, become, um, enjoy the fruits of being a member of an elite. But um, 
what the problem is, is when an ideology is used by a group of people who are becoming acquiring wealth to um, justify it in terms of, in the case of New Zealand's neo-tribal elite, justify it in terms of tradition. And I compared it to say, for example, the um, new A capitalist elites in the Italian states in the 16th century, or you can compare it to say, um, uh, Saudi Arabia today, where you have this emergent elite who have been incredibly successful, who use the ideology of religion to justify their elite status. Mm. Now, um, they are corporate elites. The neo-tribal elite in New Zealand is a corporate elite, um, as are other groups. The problem is when an economic corporation claims to be a political to have political rights. Economic corporations must be accountable to the political system, not to control the political system. It's a theme looking back on things and also coming out of the radio show that we have all these beautiful, wonderful initiatives. It might be, say, to care for the planet better and husband our natural resources and look after nature and uh, ecosystems. It might be to ensure that while we're all different, we can all have equal rights. And I'm thinking here of homosexual law reform and, and, and taking away the dreadful idea that you would be locked up because of your... Um, sexual preferences and here we have also this wonderful movement of Maori language renaissance and schools immersion schools that from you observed was taken over for I'm going to put this words in your mouth correct me if you think it's a mischaracterization for selfish reasons and self-aggrandizement reasons rather than that genuine purpose. And also for ideological reasons. And in the process, the original aims get smashed because I was a great supporter of gay pride, but not now, not when it's been used to bash women. And I sort of resent, I loved the Kura schools. Um, I love Kahanga Rayo, but not now because it's sort of becoming a thing to beat me around the head with. And so I start to resent it. You know, um, I don't like the rainbow tick anymore, the gay pride flag, because it represents rather than something beautiful and wonderful and liberating and liberal, it represents something dark and repressive. And when I observe Kahanga Rayo, I thought of the future and of kids who were proud of their heritage and proud of New Zealand's history and proud of who they were, knowing who they were and, and, and bilingual. But now I see it as something to oppress me and to hold these children back and keep them looking backwards. Is that a fair comment? Well, I, I, I think that um, 
I would find it difficult to disagree with you there. In a way, I worry about the creation of what I refer to as the foot soldiers of retribalization. I'm becoming increasingly concerned that we are producing um, a large number of young people who are um, more or less illiterate and enumerate, and illiterate not just in academic language, both Māori and English, um, but illiterate in terms of foundational, conversational language, you know, who lack. Language is, is what we have to have in order to think. Mm. And if your language is so limited, um, then obviously your thinking is limited and you are easily controlled. And I, I worry about the numbers of young people in this category who um, can be easily used for ideological purposes. And I think that's what we're starting to see. And they can, they can have been all the way through university. Yeah, yeah. And you notice that it's a tenant of liberalism that you discuss and debate and if you can't, if you're illiterate, then you can't think and debate. And so you can only assert and shout yeah. and ultimately be violent. That's the only recourse you have. And I notice it with young graduates that if you question something that they say, they get very agitated and hit up and then uh, get aggressive with you. Yeah. And do and some name calling. Yeah. Yes, it's um it's what happens when rationalism is um it is no longer valued. Mm. Can I Rodney, can I turn to education at this point? Yes. Yeah, you can is? because I would love you to, because that's where it's ended up. And you talk to us just one thing, it seems to me, Elizabeth, that you started out with your views and your views have never changed but what has changed is if you like the world around you and you've gone from being at the forefront of this movement to what I'd suggest is a heretic would that be fair um yes it would be yes now yes tell us about yeah, I um I'm very concerned about retribalization. I think that tribalism is um is an anti-liberal, anti-democratic way of organizing society. And we have allowed um of course, you know, in um in the social in in the social sphere, you know, follow whatever any any culture you wish to. But when it comes to the political category, that can only be the the citizen. It can't be, you know, a member of a tribe or any other sort of group or a gendered person. The political category is only the citizen. Mm. Okay, now tell us about what's happening in education because to I try and take an active interest and I can't understand it. I fear a revolution has occurred and I fear that it's been so jargonized and made complicated that we're all left as outsiders and we have no idea 
what is happening to our kids when we drop them off at school or our grandchildren. Can you explain for us about education and what's happened? I'd really like to, and I'd like to do it um, quite in a quite straightforward way. Please. I'd like to talk about teaching. I'd like to talk about knowledge, and I'd like to talk about the curriculum. And I will do my utmost to avoid the word learner. And I'll explain why in a minute. Um, now, the what what's truly remarkable about this country is that almost the first thing our ancestors of all races, Māori, non-Māori and others, did was to establish a national education system. And I've mentioned in numerous times how I just am entranced really by the title of the 1877 Education Act because it is so straightforward it says an act for the education of the people of New Zealand now you know the people of New Zealand there we were 1877 and there was this vision of a unified people of New Zealand who could be educated didn't matter who you were and the Act itself is a wonderful piece of legislation. It's very pragmatic and very idealistic. And I think that's probably, if we wanted to say, what is the New Zealand character? I would probably say it's this very strange mixture, intense mixture of idealism and pragmatism. And I think mm. we're still like that today. Mm. And you see it in the 1877 Education Act. But what I'll, I'll turn now to the present. In talking about education, one must talk about the teacher and teaching. We go to school to be taught something by someone who knows it. That's why we have schools. Otherwise, why have them? And, you know, it's academic subjects. That's why we go to school. And we, we go to be taught this notion of somehow over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a push for what's, what's called overseas in a um, derogatory way, learnification. <laughs> you don't have a teacher, you have a facilitator. You don't have, now in primary schools, Children should be called pupils or children or boys or girls. In secondary schools, they are students who study something. The replacement of the words pupil and students by this term learner really is the signal of the, of the revolution in education. Wow. The word learner is based on an old idea and discredited apart from in this country, that somehow children will acquire knowledge. They will construct their own knowledge if they are interested. And so we see the move to inquiry learning, personalized learning, interest-based learning, project-based learning, all based on the, the central premise of motivation, of child's curiosity. But how can you know what you're interested in? If you haven't been taught anything, you have to be taught first. 
think of all, you know, and say this to your listeners, think of all, everything you've studied, where when you first started, you thought, why do I need to know this? Just thinking about, um, in my own case, arithmetic. And then suddenly I was taught quadratic equations. And I thought, this is incredible. It was a whole new world for me, the joy of quadratic equations. Now, who would have known? When I was a seven and eight-year-old, I wouldn't have no idea that the world of quadratic equations would be opened up to me. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, because it's like learning the alphabet, um, learning the times table, yeah. which I'm having with my young kids now. And um, it appears that they don't sit down in school and learn that. And when I sit down with my kids to teach them the stuff, they think, oh, why do I need that? It's exactly right. Yes. This notion that children are put in, the, in charge of their own learning is wrong. Children must be taught what we, the adults, know they need to understand. They need to know their times table. Um, for example, in the UK, um, I think it's a, a six-year-old would be expected to know um, it's made a note of a few things. A six-year-old would it be expected to know up to their nine times table? Wow. Um, would it be expected to know by the age of seven or 40 um, phonetic sounds? Now, you don't acquire that understanding by being, by, by somehow, or by osmosis. You have to be taught it. And you have to be taught it by a teacher in a classroom. And why isn't that happening? It's, oh, right. Well, it's not happening because um, this shift to the idea that learning um, comes up from a child's natural curiosity, that misguided and discredited belief joined forces with an equally dangerous and discredited belief about what knowledge is. And this is why um, what's happening in New Zealand is worse than um, similar movements in other countries, which I must say have been rolled back as, as people realized what a terrible mistake. But the, the, um, the other um, trend which aligned with the learning learner trend was about knowledge itself and it was um it was the idea that there is no such thing as universal knowledge there is no such thing as universal science there are only so-called knowledges relative to different groups um and you know some of your list is will know about the postmodern movement mm, of indeed where which um really promoted this very dangerous idea about um no universal knowledge and what that has meant in new zealand is that teachers in particular who um have gone through the height of postmodernism as they went into faculties of education have lost Faith and confidence and knowledge, they don't know what it is anymore. They doubt it. They now talk about 
knowledge, universal knowledge being Eurocentric, being Western, being um, oppressive, being the tool of the colonial oppressor, requiring decolonization. Um, so it was, you have a combination of the discredited um, idea of what learning is aligned with this um, very damaging um, rejection of universal knowledge. And you've got an unholy alliance coming together at the same time. And that's why New Zealand education collapsed so completely in, in, from the late 1990s. Extraordinary. Yes, it is. Yes. And then that was the the whole, um, particularly the um, approach to knowledge, the idea of knowledge relativism, that was picked up by the retribalist movement. Now, I, I don't use the term Māori and non-Māori because retribalists can be from any ethnicity, they are as likely to be non-Māori as Māori. So I don't, it's not a Māori versus non-Māori division at all. Um, it's, it's about um, retribalism because if you want to discredit liberal democracy, the best way to do it is to discredit the source of its its own justification, its own ideas, its own premises. And they are the notion that there is such a thing as the human being and that this human being can think for him or herself. Now, they, they, they were revolutionary ideas from the Enlightenment. It's throwing so the it, Enlightenment and the Renaissance out the window mm. it's throwing That's out right. science yes, yes. and yes. also it's removing any possible confidence and self-esteem that a human can have oh yes yes well you know the idea that there is a human being was itself revolutionary and at the time you know in the 18th century 17th 18th century when these ideas were being developed you know you had counter enlightenment philosophers who were saying how ridiculous there's no such thing as a universal human being and there was one in particular who said no i've only seen a german i've only seen a frenchman you know i've never seen a human being so the notion of the human being was central and then the next stage was if we are all human then we are all able to think and then following from that the next point is therefore we all have rights so and we can to, all learn Yes, be taught and understand. <laughs> so, Hence the 1877 Act. That's right. Which captures so, it. Yes, so to discredit um, knowledge, to discredit the type of knowledge, <clears throat> knowledge that should be taught in schools is to undermine the very premise of what it is to be a universal human being who can think, who can be rational, Wow. It's not just about fixing a few things in the curriculum, is it? No, no. It's it's why I'm 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 very worried about what's happening to this country. We are digging our own grave and I think in many cases we don't know it. 
you have notes there, Elizabeth, and I want to keep you so that you feel as though you get across your points because everything you've said has been amazingly insightful and also terrifying and making one despondent. So keep going, please. And mm -hmm. uh, and, and if because you've got notes there and I just want to let listeners hear what you've got to say. Well, I'd like to um, be a true Kiwi and now turn to being practical. Um, so I've talked about the ideas, what can be done, because otherwise it is a very depressing scenario. Um, well, I would advise parents and grandparents to go down to the local school um, and ask, what are you teaching my child? Do not accept a reply which says your child is learning. No, no one will learn anything unless they are taught. So start with the teaching. What are you teaching? For example, in um, language, and this can be in Māori or in English, but because most of our schools are English language, I'll speak about English. Very young children, years one, must, of course, um, be taught how to write by hand. Handwriting must be an essential part right through primary school. They must be taught grammar. It is not possible to learn to write unless you understand how sentences are, um, are formed and what words are. So as children learn to, are taught to write, they must be taught the rules of grammar. They must be taught how to spell correctly. Ask your school, where are your lists of words that my child must know in each year group? Now, in the 1928 curriculum, it states that children must be taught um, the lists of words for each year group, and they must be taught how to pronounce the words correctly, including, and I quote, the correct pronunciation of Māori words. This is from the 1928. Wow. Group. So every school should have a list of vocabulary for each year group. Now, the important thing about this vocabulary is that it is of a special type. When children first go to school, if they have been exposed to a lot of language at home, and of course, if you are rich in language, if your family is rich in language, that's the, in a way, the wealth that really matters. So and that's child, the door on the world, isn't it? That's it the is. door. Yes. So a child who goes to school age five will know about 5,000 word families. By word families, I mean, you know, say, take the word walk. So there'd be walk, walked, walker, and so on. That's what I mean by word family. Now, when they go to primary school, they must be taught specialized words. Say, for example, words that are do with, to do with geography, the word continent, words that are to do with um, biology, the word mammal. And I want to come back to that word particularly. So that by the time they are in, um, say, year, oh, probably year seven, they will have about 9,000 word families, and half of those will be specialized words that they won't necessarily get at home, but they will need in order to go into secondary school. 
you know, the words to do with the word addition, times table, mathematics, and all the rest of it, those sort of words. Now, I want to say a little bit more about words. If you take, for example, um, the word, words allow us to think, but specialised words, the sort of words we should be taught at school, allow us to think in a certain way. Now, and I want to talk about classification. Say you are a five or six year old child and you are being taught about mammals. Well, you learn the names for um, male and female, for the, for the word for an adult mammal, the word for a baby mammal. Um, you know, sheep and lamb and so on. And you build up not just knowledge of these words, but the, the ability to classify, to put things into particular classes. You know, the class of young mammals, the class of female mammals and so on. And that's how we begin to structure to to structure our mind. That's how we become intelligent. So, so classification is one of the central building blocks mm. of intelligence. The other one is memorization. So you must you acquire skill at memorizing by memorizing your times table, by memorizing spelling lists and being tested on them. You know, that builds your memorization capacity. But the next important mental or cognitive or intellectual step that builds the mind is this ability to classify. Hmm. It's that was the schooling that I had mm -hmm. when I look back on it, and um, it's a schooling that you can explain to me using simple words without jargon, and I get it. But when I look at what the schools are doing now and try and understand it, it comes across to me as jargon and gobbledygook and I can't grasp it and yet here you are on the radio simply explaining what a school should be doing and also what the purpose of education is and that a teacher is a teacher and a student is a student it's yeah, that's why, why I say go down to your local school and say to the principal and to the teacher, show me your vocabulary list for this year. Show me what the children will be learning to spell. What times table are you teaching this year in ge for geography? And talk about academic subjects, not the sort of learning areas business. Um, what are you teaching the children what the map of the world looks like, the names of continents, and so on. You know, specific details. When it comes to the history of New Zealand, and I will never bring myself to use the word histories. It no, is the history of history. New Zealand. <laughs> we don't um, know it. We don't know it all. We're still struggling <laughs> to comprehend it, but there is only one history. 
and and that great phrase lived experience oh you know well oh well give me i might a, have give told me a dead one <laughs> i might have i might have given i may have told a complete lie but that was my lived experience <laughs> um elizabeth carry on because i want to come back on a few things but i want to make sure you cover the points that you want to cover because you've you're giving such a awe-inspiring insight and overview so please keep going on your list and then when you've done i might have some questions for you um well i particularly want to get in an, one example from the history of new zealand that will cause a great deal of difficulty now and i want to compare it to how the germans have dealt with their um, history of the holocaust now it is not possible to understand why so many chiefs signed the Treaty of Waitangi without understanding the preceding 40 to 50 years, going back to the 1780s. It's a bit like when you study the causes of World War I. You can't understand what happened unless you go back and look at those causes. It's the same, same principle. Um, so in studying history, you have to study causes. Now, it will be very difficult for children, and there will need to be discussion about which year groups this, um, this material should be taught to, but we do need to teach what happened between 1780s and right up into actually um, the 1840s with the intertribal wars. And given that many New Zealand children have ancestors who were involved in those wars, particularly in the most terrible massacres, some case genocide, if you think of um, Ngāti Tua going to the Chathams, it was genocide. Um, it is not easy for children, or it's not easy for anyone to know that all our ancestors did some rather terrible things, as well as some great things, but we have to know about both. Um, so I think we need a quite a detailed discussion about this, um, because it has to be taught, the intertribal wars have to be taught, if the treaty is to be taught, in an objective way. Um, and I know in Germany, all children have to study the Holocaust, and it is not easy for them, you know, no, to know that no, what their ancestors did. Um, and then, of course, yes, yes, as close as that. And if you think about the tribal wars, it was only 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. In the history of the world, it's not long ago. The danger is that instead of us having an objective history, we now have what's called um, history as collective memory. So it's not really history. It's either collective memory or collective um, amnesia, where you decide what you want to know from the past in the interests of the present. Um, and so collective memory is quite different from objective history. Collective memory is what we decide as a nation. We would like to know about ourselves. We'd like to remember because it makes us look good. Or serves and, a political purpose. Yes, it does. And there are sometimes it's, if we know it's happening and, you know, if you take Anzac Day, I mean, 
Enzette is a really good example of yes. us engaging in collective memory. Yes. We don't talk about the fact that we were part of an imperial force invading someone else's country. No. I mean, we know that to be, that's the objective truth of it. But collective memory serves a different purpose. And as long as we know about that and keep it confined to that purpose. But history in school must be objective, factual history. What happened? Who was there? What was the event? What are the sources for, for us knowing about it? Are the sources reliable? Have they been independently verified? That's the sort of history that must be taught in school. So um, there's an interesting thing here too, isn't there? Because we are looking back on history, um, I believe still, with a Christian ethic. And so we recoil in horror at genocide. It's just because we believe that life is sacred and that each human being is sacred. But the Romans ne never thought anything about the total destruction of Carthage and the Phoenician Empire. Nothing. It just didn't occur to them. You know, they were Romans and these guys and girls are in their way. They were gone. And likewise, um, in the tribal warfare, um, it was considered to be a good thing to wipe out a neighboring tribe. Um, and that in of itself teaches you the value of your current ethical system and value system. And that's a fascinating thing that's not there now when we want to judge our forebears. Like, you can't change history, but also you've got to be careful not to be judging your ancestors on your sensitivities and your mores because you know the Romans were different that's partly why you enjoy studying them because they looked at the world differently and so you learn to value if you like the principles of western civilization which treat human beings as valuable and sacred is that a fair comment Yes, and it helps you to understand things like, you know, what about human, what humans are capable of. Look at um, Russia and Ukraine today. Yes. It gives you perspective. So studying history is more than just knowing about things that happened. It's about, um, well, it's about um, an, gaining an awareness of time, of, of causes, of um, comparison. So as you, as you say, you know, to be able to compare um, values of the past with what's valued by some today, but not everyone, of course. Mm. Um, it, it gives perspective, yeah. So the study of history is absolutely important, and it must not just be the study of New Zealand history, because that makes the country parochial. If you're only studying the history of your own country, um, then you become inward-looking and defensive. No, New our children should study world history, um, neo Neolithic civilizations, mm. um, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Please carry on, Elizabeth. I, right. well, I to knock you off course. <laughs> I just um, a few random thoughts. Um, a lot of uh, part of the whole learning movement 
um, is this this um, uh, emphasis on projects. No, do not allow your children, your young children, to do project after project. They should be being taught specific subject knowledge and with lots of interesting and creative activities. For example, you know, if you're teaching punctuation, it's quite possible, you know, if you're a really creative, young and energetic teacher, to um, create a, a some sort of a dance based on the children yes. acting out punctuation points. Yes. You know, with your post, you might act out a sentence and you have someone jumping in as an apostrophe and someone else as a comma. You can do all sorts of creative things. So... What I want to see is a standardized national curriculum where every school teaches prescribed knowledge. So it doesn't matter what school you go to, you know you will be getting what's considered so valuable that children down the road get it. You should get it too. Mm. Now, for some teachers there is a sense of uh, threat to their autonomy. But no, teachers are completely free to teach in creative ways. Um, sure, the national a standardized national curriculum will say what must be taught. And of course it must be taught. All children must have this knowledge. But how teachers teach it is up to the teacher. So you can really let your creativity um, you know, be expressed in, in how you teach the type of activities you get children to do. But this business of sending children off to do their own projects, no. From about 11, children do like to do individual projects, but keep it limited. Make sure that um, they're not off to Wikipedia. They're not off to some internet sources. Say, for example, someone wants to study the history of writing. Then you as the teacher, give them the resources that they can use. Make sure that some of the resources they investigate are not digital, that there's a mixture of digital and um, book-based resources, control project learning. Um, can I, have you covered all the points that you'd like to, Elizabeth? Oh, um, <laughs> um, uh, probably just to, yeah, one last thing. The Ministry of Education has what is called a national curriculum, but it is not a national curriculum. It is um, an ideological statement, particularly the latest curriculum refresh. What happens is that individual schools with their local communities decide what their children will, will not be taught, but will learn. Um, and I've talked about the dangers yes. of this learning approach. So what I want is for us to get rid of the idea of a localised curriculum and have a standardised national curriculum as we did in the past. Okay, let me make some queries and observations because <laughs> you have given us a tour de force and incredible food for thought. And 
we used to be able to send our children to school and think the school's teaching them. And you've actually thrown a huge responsibility back on us as parents and grandparents because that assumption doesn't necessarily apply that they're being taught. But here are some queries and observations. This explains, does it not, why young people are so depressed? Because they actually don't understand and they don't have self-esteem that comes from a confidence of understanding and knowing about the world and the history of where you are, that confidence that comes from knowledge, they actually don't have it. Mm -hmm. And that also explains their advocacy and their almost militancy about matters, does it not? You know, the, yeah. the stridentness because they're puffed up with ideas which are wrong-headed and muddle-headed. They're just, they're confused. It's, it's a recipe for confusion and undermining. They're um, ignorant and they're angry. Yeah, and they, sh they, they should be angry because yeah. they have been appallingly treated. Wouldn't this be what is happening in our schools? sort of a recipe of destruction of civil society? Yes, it is. Do you think somewhere this was its purpose, not a conspiracy, but that there's this sort of Marxist idea that I'll create turmoil and um, strife and overthrow this terrible patriarchy or capitalist hegemony and make for some bright future, I don't know what it is, but that idea of uh, strife gives opportunity for something new, you know, the Jacobites or something. It, 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 what it, I mean, it is so painfully obvious to someone when you explain it to them, that this is a terrible thing that's happened. How on earth could teachers and the Ministry of Education and politicians and those with an interest in this push this along and allow it to happen? Because obviously it's so destructive. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's a number of those forces coming together. And most people who have driven this are very well-meaning. And if you think of people in the Ministry of Education in the New Zealand Centre for Educational Research, well-meaning people, um, but taking a moralistic position, um, seeing education as um a social is something to socialize children rather than um something where you um, transmit knowledge, because as soon as you doubt knowledge, you take away the very purpose of schooling. So I think a lot of a lot of forces have come together, um, have been picked up by various political interests, not just um, socialism, but um, retribalism. Environmentalism. Um, yeah, yes, you know, a lot of forces coming together in that unholy alliance. Mm. What do you think would happen if I trot off to the school? I get endless stream of emails from the local school about what the kids are up to. And I'm horrified after hearing you speak to realize it's all about the projects they're doing. <laughs> 
and nothing about what they're being taught. You described my experience exactly. And by the way, my kids in Christchurch went to very prestigious private schools. Same stuff. It wasn't. You couldn't send your kid off to a private school and think you're escaping this curriculum or this way of teaching or projects. What do you think would be the response if I went off and said, oh, um, what words are you expecting my son to learn this year? Where are the word lists? Yeah. Um, well, you can always take get the download the curriculum from England, and you will have be able to take along some lists and say, you know, do you have lists like this? Um, but they already think of me mm. as a old white dinosaur that will soon die out and hasn't got a bachelor of education particularly the younger teachers. Mm -hmm. And I have really said nothing. It's just my mere presence. I detect that <laughs> being radiated yeah. towards me. And I can't imagine changing what the local school teaches. Well, what I'd, I, I think there'll be some very worried parents who now think, oh gosh, my child does not have a developed vocabulary, does not know no. his or her times table. Um, it, you, you can't just wait until things change. I would suggest teaching your child at home or getting a group of parents together and teaching where the times table is taught by rote and um, you know it's done after school. Let your school know you are doing this because the school is failing them. Could I just add that there are some schools that are very good, that yes. are actually teaching something. Yes. Um, so to those teachers out there who are actually teaching, I admire you enormously, knowing that the full weight of this huge ideology is, is pressing down upon you. So there are some schools that are doing it, but for most New Zealand children, they are not getting the knowledge, the subject knowledge that they must get. And particularly when you go back to the 1877 Act, mm -hmm. when you think of what we have now in New Zealand to our horror is an underclass, yeah. is very often a Maori underclass that is getting absolutely nothing. Tell me, have you felt the whole weight of the education establishment fall on you as you do your critical studies? Oh, Rodney, I don't talk about myself and, and emotions. I um, deal only with um, a rational analysis of objective facts. <laughs> well, that's a wonderful... <laughs> Elizabeth, Professor Rata, um, we've, our hour has passed along like this wonderful seminar where you have provided this insight of a lifetime of research and experience and observation of our education system where this revolution has occurred and with the understanding that you have 
provided us, I believe that you have empowered our listeners. And I can't thank you enough. That wasn't an hour uh, of your time. That was your career um, provided to us within an hour. And it was absolutely lovely. I would love it for you to come back and share more with us. And I hope you felt um, that you had a good opportunity to get across what you had to say. It was, I'm, I'm speechless by it, which never happens. Um, and I'm horrified what I'm going to do about my little kids because I see it exactly as you described. Um, thank you so much. You will come back on again. Yes, I'd love to. Um, perhaps a um, useful way would be if you do get questions from listeners, if I it could be a sort of Q and A session, and I yes. respond to um, your your listeners' questions. Yes, well, I'll give out the um, I'll give out the email because I've just momentarily forgot it because we're so new and we're going to get texting and all the rest of it. It's all coming, but. Um, that was wonderful. I thank you for your time. That was Professor Elizabeth Rata, um, a colossus, actually, with this overview of the education system. When we live in a time of experts being more and more specialized and more and more narrow, what we had was this monumental overview of Western civilization, of what it is, of history, of pedagogy, of um, our history of education, and where we are now and how we came to be where we are and also an insight about what we need to do to counter it for our grandchildren, our children, for the sake of our society. Uh, you with Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's uh, Reality Check Radio. And we've just had, ladies and gentlemen, a real big dose of reality. Thanks to Professor Elizabeth Rata. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.